In February 2017, the Washington Post added the phrase, democracy dies in darkness, to its masthead. The paper's award-winning veteran journalist, Laura Vazella, keeps the light shining on Virginia politics. I want to welcome Laura Vazella of the Washington Post to the Cultural Scavenger. Laura, when did you know that you wanted to be a journalist? Hmm. It's a good question. I, um, you know, I went to college knowing I would major in English, but thinking I would maybe go to law school. And, and after my freshman year, I was looking for something to do for a summer job. And I applied for all different sorts of things. And one the one internship that I got was with a little teeny tiny paper in Hartford, Connecticut, um, not the daily paper, a little biweekly neighborhood newspaper. And I did that. And I thought that was a lot of fun. And I don't know that I instantly thought then that I would go work for a newspaper, but my my um, at the last semester, my senior year there at uh, Trinity College in in Hartford, I, I worked for the Hartford Current, which is you know the oldest oldest newspaper in Connecticut. For a long time, it was the the nation's oldest continuously published newspaper that had never won a Pulitzer. And I had a little uh, an internship there and was kind of hooked then and um, have stuck with it ever since. You started there at the hometown paper in Hartford. Right. And actually, after I graduated, um, this should have been a signal that the industry was not um, uh, going um, to necessarily be stable. But even back <laughs> then, that was 1988, they were in the midst of a hiring freeze and they had been bought by an out-of-town chain. And uh, that actually, in some ways, worked to my advantage because they had some uh, positions they couldn't they couldn't fill. So they used freelancers. So I worked and got paid by the story, maybe $40 a story to go sit through a, an endless board of education or town council meeting and write it up and, and get a whopping 40 bucks. And I had to live at, back at home with my parents for, for uh, about nine months till I finally got hired um, full-time there covering a little town then up in the, on the Massachusetts border, Stafford, Connecticut. And I, again, that, that time I was I was uh, on staff, but kind of doing the same thing, covering the board of education, town council, that sort of stuff. But and, it must have been it must have been gratifying to get paid for writing. Yes, yes, uh, it, it it certainly was, and it was a um, it was a great way to to start off. And it wasn't the tiniest paper out there. It's not a you know it's not it's not the Boston Globe or something like that, but it was. A real, you know, a real daily paper, regional paper. And so from there you went to, you graduated and went to the Baltimore Sun, correct? Uh, well, actually I had a little uh, detour in there and um, wound up at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. But I was there, uh, let's see, uh, my husband and I got married and at the time he worked in uh, computers and and uh, so we moved for his uh, for his job. And I got on with the Star Telegram, and that was a lot of fun. I was there for seven years, and it was just, it was kind of neat too because we had just gotten married, and it was a, you know, it was a brand new adventure. We'd never spent any time in Texas, and there was a lot of 
lot of colorful things to to write about there. And for a while, I you know I covered small town stuff, and then I uh, graduated up to covering uh, federal court, and then did some national reporting for them. Um, unfortunately, uh, a lot of the news then were were that it was the start of the whole school shootings trend. I don't know what to call it, but but the string of tragedies. So I ended up going say to Columbine and to um, prior to that the um, Oklahoma City bombing. That was only a few hours away. You worked your way up, I guess, through the with the mm-hmm. telegram. Yeah, I had a quick detour to uh, AP in Boston. We uh, we were in we were in Texas for seven years. Really liked it, um, and then by then. Uh, we didn't have children yet, but uh, our siblings had children, and we kind of wanted to get back east. My husband's from Pennsylvania, and I'm mm-hmm. from Connecticut. And, you know, you could only get home by flying home. So we, we wanted to be closer to family. And I always did have this dream that the that the um, Boston Globe was going to describe uh, uh, discover me, and I would send my clips for years and worry about which corner I put the, um, the staple <laughs> in. And, well, you were um, saved for something better. I know, yes, exactly. But I, I never did get, get in there. But I, uh, I took a job with AP in Boston. Kind of uh, left before I looked, and it was not a, it was not a love, uh, love match, uh, a love connection. And I was kind of in and out of there in nine months, and then was at the Baltimore Sun, and felt like I was settled there. We were there eleven years, and wow. we really were not looking to to uh, move. By then, while there, I had two children. My husband changed careers from computers to teaching math. We were pretty much settled there. And then some guy in, some real estate guy in Chicago thought it'd be fun to have a chain of newspapers. And he bought bought us up, bought the, you know, Chicago Tribune, bought the yep. Baltimore, a whole bunch of other papers and drove us right into bankruptcy. And that was not Super fun. Uh, lots of layoffs. That was really even before things got as bad as they are now in right. journalism. Right. Yeah. So uh, that got pretty bad. Honestly, I, I started um, part of that point, whenever somebody left the, a paper that I worked at and went to PR or something, I used to think it was sad. And then by then I, I thought, Oh, <laughs> maybe they're hiring. So I, I started looking outside the field. I honestly did think I was going to have to leave journalism because I felt like there weren't going to be any jobs or they'd be really limited. I talked to reporters who had left and gone to law school or others who had gone on to blog about food or whatever and and uh and applied for jobs at uh Hopkins Johns Hopkins was a you know that's such a monster organization there in, in Baltimore you know so I looked around at doing something else because it just it wasn't a happy time there at the sun and um and by chance the guy who I sat next to shared that he was talking to the post about a, a job covering DC police he covered Baltimore police at the time, Peter Herman, he's a phenomenon. And he, um, and he said, he just, just confided that, Hey, they're doing a little hiring and they've got this new, uh, edit that local editor. And, uh, you might just give it a try, give that a try. So I did. And they had a job in Richmond and I wasn't 
always looking to move and uproot the family and all, but but it sounded pretty good to me. So I, I talked to them, they offered me the job and we all came down here and we've, we've really been happy and, and we've lucked out that the, the post got a deep-pocketed uh, <laughs> investor yeah, yeah. who, at least from my, from the, from my perspective, doesn't doesn't meddle in coverage at all. Uh, certainly yeah, not. It, he really is a hands off guy, and he does have deep pockets. And you, that's the thing he can af- he can afford to create a bureau for you. So, mm-hmm. when you got that job, was it specifically Virginia politics? Laura raising her hand, saying, "Hey, I want to cover politics. This is hey, we want you to cover politics in Virginia." Is that kind of the way it went? Right, right. They had at the time and still have a two-person bureau in Richmond and uh, focused on Virginia politics. And that that could mean the, you know, General Assembly, but also governor's races. Uh, We get involved in sometimes the Senate and congressional races, although there is actually someone who covers the D.C., Maryland and Virginia congressional delegations. But sometimes we get involved in that if there's just too much for that person to to handle if there are too many races going on. Because as you know, there's an election every year. And yeah. and you have seen quite the transformation in Virginia politics. Right. All the uh, Republicans controlled everything when, when I came down. They had a supermajority or close to it in the House of uh, Delegates. I can't remember that the Senate has flipped back and forth and always been sort of a closely divided chamber since then, but at, but at the time when I came down, governor, lieutenant governor, and AG were all Republican. And then, um, you know, we were considered a swing state for the, all the presidential elections until last year when we weren't considered in play at all. I mean, Trump made just one one visit here. Rural areas like where I live, they become redder. It's so polarized. There's no in between. And right. I think it's it's given rise to folks that you have covered, like Amanda Chase, who I think is an extremist. And I think, you know, she's has the Republican Party. She's holding them hostage because I don't know that somebody like Kirk Cox or any of these other candidates, they never were even before she came along. They were never going to give an inch on gun legislation. and But now they've kind of doubled down on crazy. And. I'm curious, when you're out covering a story and you talk to people in rural areas, what do they tell you? I do think it's it's not just the guns. It's Trumpism overall. Trumpism is has really increased, as you said, the polarization, whereas uh, in, in the suburban areas, you know, that, that helped turn Virginia from a purple state to a blue state, for sure, right? And there are a mm-hmm. lot of suburbanites who turned away from the Republican Party because of Trump. And it's not just guns. It's 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 abortion. It's uh, you name it. It's it's a it's a laundry list of, I think, issues that suburban and college educated voters find repugnant or just alien to them. Right. And I think that this election will be the first test of whether the party can win some of that support back, but they haven't shown any signs of really moving away from Trump. Certainly if Amanda Chase were to get the nomination, she would not back away from anything that Trump supports. She brands herself as Trump in heels. 
the uh, the others are trying to walk that very fine line. But going back to how you actually uh, what people in rural areas are in rural areas, he is still very popular and he uh, got more votes. Trump got more votes for president last year in Virginia than he did the time before, but he still lost by 10 percent. So, the, you know, the real question is whether the, the Democratic base is still so inflamed by Trump that they'll come out in the numbers they did. But you can be sure that the Trump voters cult, if you will, they're going to be there. If there was an election for dog catcher every week, they would be there voting. And so I think that's what Democrats have to be aware of is that motivation for these folks has not diminished. They're going to be out there. I don't know if you saw this or not. You probably did. But just up the road from me in Boone's Mill, they have a Trump store that ironically was an old church that they've converted into a Trump store. And they this guy opened this store, I guess, in October. You know, we pass it going to Roanoke, you know, every time we go to Roanoke. And Laura, it's still there. It is still there doing, I guess, gangbuster business. It's got flags and posters and yard signs all over the place. And there are people there all the time, day and night. Mm -hmm. It's, it is just bizarre. (laughs) Interesting. Um, I'll I'll just make clear. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a cult. To give you one example, that's really interesting to me. um, And it shows the tightrope is just the question of whether the election was stolen or not. Uh, um, you have Amanda Chase as the, the the person most aligned with with Trump, who was out there on January 6th. She didn't storm the Capitol, but she, you know, was out there and made a speech and said, you know, that the election was stolen. And she later praised the people who, who broke in and said that they were um, patriots. And she continues to to say that there are seven contenders running for uh, the GOP nomination. Of the seven, only one will say that Biden was legitimately elected, and that's Kirk Cox. And he waited mm-hmm. until after the Electoral College voted. And at that point, people were there weren't that many people in the race at that point, but Democrats were kind of busting him for waiting until then. But at then at that point, he did say, in fact, it's over. The others will not say it. Now, some who clearly want to be able to pivot after, if when and if they win the, the nomination are maybe being a little more cautious. Glenn Youngkin, for example, who seemed to be the party's best chance for if they want a brand new, fresh face, no voting record, sophisticated Northern Virginia businessman, right? But on a campaign that's pushing election integrity. And when asked, we're doing this because you're saying that the election was stolen. He says, no, I'm doing this because a lot of people don't have faith in the election. Well, they don't have faith in the election because the president and a lot of elected leaders said there was fraud and there is no evidence of fraud. But he's he's not out there as as Amanda is, or say a Pete Snyder, really forcefully saying the election was stolen, but he's playing into that. That the majority of these people are buying into. How refreshing would it be for these folks to say, you know what, it is the big lie. There was no voter fraud. There was no evidence of it whatsoever. Yet they just keep pushing it because they all watch Fox News. Right. The same with 
the uh, verdict in the George Floyd case this week. And I'm not, again, I'm not weighing in on what the verdict should be or anything like that. But Amanda Chase came out very forcefully saying that it it made her sick. I saw that. I mean, others. Unbelievable. You know, every Democrat came out and and applauded the verdict. Um, Amanda Chase said it made her sick. The others didn't volunteer anything. But when asked, Kirk Cox and Youngkin put out statements that, you know, the jury has spoken and we must accept the, the jury's verdict kind of thing. They're running very much on law and order, I think, in large part because their other big issues were the coronavirus sh- shutdown and, um, you know, schools being shut down as part of that. And also the uh, the vaccine problems with testing or vaccines. I think the schools and the vaccine stuff will be really in the rearview mirror by fall. So, you know, God help us. Uh, <laughs> I yeah, hope that we, everything's straightened out for society's sake, not for political. Right. Oh, yeah. No kidding. When Kirk Cox makes, I guess, what you could construe as a conciliatory statement, that doesn't play well with the base. They, right. They want red meat. They want Amanda Chase. So it's going to be very interesting to see how somebody like Kirk Cox, who I've never really cared for only. Uh, obviously, you weren't a fan of him. He's I, very, very gun rights, very pro-gun rights. Sure. You know, and, and that actually, I think that's the last time we saw each other was when was the special session. And he stood hmm. up there and they they called it a day, what, 90 minutes after the, after the governor had called a special session. So, you know, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. They are not going to even the most, quote unquote, moderate. Republican, if you can call Kirk Cox moderate, they're never going to give an inch on any kind of reasonable gun legislation at all. I don't think you're wrong. I don't think uh, no one is um, is supporting any any gun control on the on the Mm. Republican side for sure. I think they're primarily railing against what what has been passed. If uh, if if anyone's being a little more honest, I think they they would have to sort of pitch themselves as sort of the inverse of what Terry McAuliffe was when he had the Republican legislature and he was the firewall, as he called it, against more restrictions on abortion and that sort of thing. So if if you accept the premise that Virginia is a blue state, a Republican governor can win. You have Larry Hogan right right next door there in Maryland. He does not, he, he isn't promising far as I know, to to roll back restrictions on guns. He's he's more or less what you just mentioned. It's the it's it's honesty. It's you know, that's the and there therein lies the rub. I can say that. You, you can you can bring it up, but I can say they aren't being honest. I think that's gonna be why they're going to continue unless Democrats just completely go to sleep and think, well, you know, it's time for a victory lap. We've done our thing here. Uh, that would be a big mistake, I think, for right. for people in the party to, or Democrats in general, suburban, urban voters to go. Uh, you know, we got this in the bag, and that's what Demo- That's what they like to do. It's like, oh, we got this one covered, and then suddenly they don't have it covered. I mean, that's obviously been the pattern that, and also that the electorate rebels against whoever is in in power mm-hmm. in the White House, and the only person I think in in modern times to to buck that trend was Terry McAuliffe when he won, even though uh, Obama was in the 
the White House. Um, I, I think, I mean, this is the big test this year is without Trump, are we still a blue state or did it take Trump's presence to rile up Democrats enough that they turn out in large numbers in off-year elections the way the Republicans will crawl over glass to, you know, <laughs> they vote for everything. Yep. Um, and if they all, if everybody who voted for Donald Trump turned out and voted for the Republican nominee, they would likely win because more Democrats are sort of uh, fair weather friends. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I don't know if that's the, the case. I don't know that. And, and there's been a lot of bad feelings among the Republican candidates. And it's never going to be a love fest when there's a nominating contest. But there has been a lot of upset within the uh, the Republican Party over just how they're doing their convention. You know, mm-hmm. it's a convention versus a primary. And so you have one candidate, Amanda Chase, saying Pete Snyder wins. She'll run as an independent. I think that would be a killer. I mean, I, it would be a shock if she could prevail, but she could draw. Certainly, draw. Oh, she will. She will. In essence, she'd hand Terry the, uh, the, the the governorship without much of an an effort on his part. Obviously, he's running like he's got the most serious opposition that he can get. I, I think it, it's interesting because I'm sure you've heard that Denver Riggleman may throw a monkey wrench into the machinery too. Right. He's been publicly toying with that for some time. Hasn't, hasn't happened yet, but uh, I wouldn't blame him. I mean, he, he was very embittered by how the, um, again, it was his business with the convention and party-run process. And uh, again, for the party that has been decrying uh, election integrity, there, there there are a lot of shenanigans that can go yeah. on with yeah. conventions where, because it's local party units that decide who can vote, where they vote. So in a large sprawling district like Riggleman's that is the size of New Jersey, they had the vote concentrated. It was in the home county of his opponent. It's interesting that he was primaried or cantered as we in Virginia have <laughs> liked to you know, coin the new phrase of getting primaried, but of all things, because he conducted a wedding for two gay people. I mean, is that not just, this is where, why I call this and you can't, but I can call it a cult because, you know, only, only people in a cult would abide by something as, as ridiculous as that. But nevertheless, that's what they got. Let me switch gears for a second. So, What's the most interesting story you've ever written about? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, I guess it would have to be the near meltdown of the entire um, executive branch uh, almost two years ago with the, the scandal with, um, with the blackface scandal. Uh, Blackface scandal with the with the uh, governor, the attorney general, then then uh, two women coming forward and accusing uh, the lieutenant governor of um, sexual assault, and then the, seeing the Democrats actually still prevail after that. That that to me looked like the death knell, and I and certainly <laughs> yeah. de- Democrats. I, I I mean, sorry, Republicans. As soon as they came out of that general assembly session, had this ad that seemed was a killer ad it came out of i think out of cox's office um and it was democrat you know scandal and disarray and did not look good (laughs) and 
they went on to take control of the General Assembly yeah. in the very next election. And, you know, Northam not only hung on, he hasn't just limped along, he moved beyond it and has become, you know, whether whether you like his policies or not, he's been the most consequential Democratic governor uh, in a generation because he's presided over, you know, the Democrats took full control and first General Assembly session after after that. So it was just a year after that scandal, they yeah. did a 180 on gay rights, gun rights, abortion rights, uh, all these long stalled Democratic priorities. Again, I'm not saying good or bad, right. but they got them all through. Absolutely. And then this year, it's funny, we 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 kind of laughed at it. it felt like a very quiet General Assembly session. They legalized but. marijuana and eliminated <laughs> the death penalty. But but compared to the revolution from the, 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 the year before. And then let's not forget in the in the meantime, in the, it, there was a special session, a very marathon uh, criminal justice, you know, revamping. We don't say reform because it's it sounds right positive and I'm not saying it's positive or negative but it's it, they made a lot of changes and once again with all the um uproar in this summer where there you know there were some peaceful protests and there were some violent protests the violence was was not long lasting but there were a few days I was out in it where people looted and you know smashed stuff up and and I thought okay this is this is what's going to switch the pendulum back, and that's certainly what the, the the Republicans highlighted. And you know, again, you had Trump on the ballot, so that's the that's the the question: Do you still have that momentum uh, without Trump? But when Republicans say, "Oh, Democrats have overreached on guns and everything else, all these social issues, and there are mobs in the street," well, we've already had. An election since that, and Trump lost by ten percent. Again, the core the question is: Does it revert to the norm, and do people rebel against that? But I I would have thought last year was the the big year for any revulsion against that because we haven't seen continued violence in the streets. We you know again it was a few days of that. I'm not saying that was. That was okay that there were just a few days of it. There was there was a lot of destruction, even of some black-owned businesses. And that was that's good material for the Republicans, but it hasn't worked for them yet. So given that, why don't you handicap for me and who do you like in the fall elections here? Republicans have not found a winning message yet, at least a message that can overcome the antipathy to Trump. So I think they'll have a hard time unless they choose a nominee who can distance himself from him. And yet I don't see anybody really in their nominating contest who's doing that now. And I think the danger would be if somebody say like, a, well, anyone aside from Amanda who might present themselves <laughs> as anything other than a, a Trump knockoff, right? They could say, hey, I'm just a businessman. I'm uh, and I just want to run things efficiently and put the social issues on the back burner. The base might not turn out for them. It was sort of the situation that Ed Gillespie was in. He, you know, he almost knocked off Mark Warner, yeah. right? And that was a big surprise to to everybody. Including and Warner. Then, absolutely. And then when he ran again for governor, 
sort of on the strength of that performance, but suddenly he was having to navigate Trumpism. A disaster. I mean, he didn't get blown away, but it was so awkward for him because he was trying to to walk this line, and so he he'd want to be the Big Tent guy that he had always been, and yet then he's putting out ads, you know, with MS13 is going to rape and pillage your neighborhood, and you know he's trying to have it both ways, and that was very awkward. And that's the conundrum for the Republican Party. You know, guys that try like like that or candidates that try to walk that tightrope, they can't really do it because if you look at the numbers, Trumpism is the Republican Party now. It is the dominant part of the Republican Party, so they can't walk away from it. And I think that's going to make things very difficult. There is no big tent there. Their appeal is to that hardcore 30 to 40 percent of the people out there, and it's not going to play well with college-educated voters that the ones that they have traditionally had in the past where oh well these you know they're conservative that's all gone now so let me ask you this what's the funniest thing that's ever happened to you in the business there was a moment once when um right after terry mcauliffe won the governor's race and uh, uh, bob mcdonald on the verge of being indicted but still in office he he had he invited McAuliffe down to have lunch with him at the governor's mansion and he, they were going to chat. And then afterward, they'd come out and do a little gaggle with the reporters. That drew a lot of out of town reporters, in part because Terry McAuliffe had this already had this national profile, but also because McDonald was in so much trouble. So people came down from DC, from the New York Times or wh- whatever. And so when they came out, all the out-of-town reporters start shouting questions over each other, like in Washington at the at, at a normal gaggle. And all of us in Richmond, in the Richmond Press Corps, we just all looked at each other because generally speaking, unless you're in a really high-pressure situation, like the governor is going to wait and take at least one question from everybody. And it's not a hostile thing and you've got to get your question in. And <laughs> just to me, I don't mean to make it sound like we're some genteel backwater, but it's not this insane cutthroat environment. Like you see in the movies. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, all of us in the press corps uh, here, again, we, um, and sadly, the number is shrinking uh, all the time. The uh, Roanoke paper just just decided to, to stop having a, and they had a great reporter down here, Amy Friedenberger. Total shame. Yeah. I was going to mention that earlier and I'm glad you brought that up, but yeah, Amy, Amy's a friend and, and we correspond and uh, yeah, it's sad, but that's, that's a microcosm of what's going on all across the country. All these local papers are shrinking and she's going to be writing about something else, but that's not what she wants to do. No, it's a it's a shame. But uh, and what I was going to say is that those of us who are still left in the press corps, and it's always been this way, we'll help each other. We have all, at critical moments, forgotten to hit on when we're or, or we've hit on to record, and a call comes in, and it's and it's the school nurse calling to say your kid just threw up, right? And so it cut off your recording, and so we've all said, "Oh, I missed that." Will you send me the audio? We we help each other out, even though again we all want to get our get our scoops. And I, I think that's my kind of environment. I'd love to just finish my career here, whatever that is. 
Yeah, you've got a great gig and you do wonderful work and it's just it's terrific having you on the program and I hope I didn't put you on the spot too much. No, well, I hope I didn't mess up either, but um, if I did... That's too bad. Whatever. I only have myself <laughs> to blame. Hey, Laura, thanks so much for joining me and we'll stay tuned, as they say. All right. Thank you. You bet. Take care. Well, that's the story. A special acknowledgement to Marianne Kennedy, Pat Bunch, and Pam Rose for allowing me to use their music from Safe in the Arms of Love, a song Allison loved. If you liked what you heard, please share my podcast with your friends. And while you're at it, why not subscribe? And I'd sure appreciate a great rating in Apple Podcasts, too. I'm Andy Parker, and I'll be here next week with another episode of The Cultural Scavenger. Thanks for listening. <laughs>